You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host Ben Nagy from Smart TD Communications and Michael Blaine from Smart Communications, who is producing this episode. Welcome to the 21st episode of Talking Smart. Each month, we bring you news, guests, and discussions of interest to smart members and working families across the United States and Canada. Last episode, we heard from Joe De La Cruz, a smart sheet metal worker in Groton, Connecticut, who is also a state senator, proudly serving the communities of Groton and New London. This episode, we sit down with two more SMART members who have successfully run for elected office. We discuss their sheet metal and transportation careers, what motivated them to run for elected office, specific steps they took to build and run successful campaigns, and key issues they focused on once in office. Our first guest this episode is Matt Cherry, a local 33 sheet metal member from Toledo, Ohio, who serves as president of Toledo City Council. Among other topics, he discussed the efforts that went into his successful campaign for city council. Knocking the doors is probably number one, and labor really showed up for that. We had 50, 60 labor members out every weekend knocking doors, not including my family members. Matt also discussed some of the victories he's been able to win for working families as a council president. One of the biggest things that I really hang our hat on is how many project labor agreements we've been able to accomplish. Our next guest is Dan O'Connell, a longtime member of the Smart Transportation Division who served as New Jersey State Legislative Director for 20 years until his retirement in 2018. He also served as the Delran Councilman and Burlington County Freeholder. Dan has been a recognizable face across every part of our union as his formidable reputation in the New Jersey State House preceded him prior to his retirement. Voting, lobbying, and writing letters to politicians are one thing, but actually being in an elected position and making decisions that affect jobs, families, and communities is key. Dan underscored the importance of having regular working people in elected positions. There's an old expression in labor. You're either at the table or you're on the menu. When you run for office, it's just another way of getting to the table and helping your members and helping yourself. In addition, listen for the open mic segment with General President Joseph Sellers at the end of this episode. He responds to a question about whether railroad workers are allowed to strike. We must and we need to follow the process, the Railway Labor Act process. We need to follow that for the benefit of our members, to protect our members' interests, and frankly, not to give the carrier anything to be used against us. Our first guest today is Matt Cherry. He's a local 33 sheet metal worker from Toledo, Ohio, and he also serves as the president of the Toledo City Council. Matt, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Paul and Ben. I'm glad to be here. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you first got into the sheet metal industry? Yes, so I was a a very young man, uh, 17 years old, uh, still in high school, and started framing additions and garages with my, with my old man, you know, in the summers and things like that. And um, fortunately enough, my old man had a 
a good bunch of tenors that he hung out at the bar with. And uh, when I graduated high school, he says, you know, you need to get into the union. So I did so roughly uh, about 19 years old. I waited a little bit because I was a little bit hesitant, but uh, got in at 19 years old, started doing architectural sheet metal, um, which I was very uh, deathly scared of heights, but the paychecks were great. So I, I learned to live with the heights, um, ended up graduating uh, my apprenticeship in 2006 and uh, went on to continue to do architectural work and a lot of industrial work. I worked in a lot of industrial car plants doing ventilation throughout the country for one of our bigger contractors uh, in the area. In 2011, uh, a lot of the membership here in Toledo, Ohio, um, basically uh, came to me over and over again. And in 2010, even before that, um, as I was the executive board member at the time and you know wanted me to run for agent. So I did, I became a business representative early on in 2011 and still hold the seat today. Um, and love working with the membership, love uh, doing new things, working with the international, and uh, always uh, here to look out for the members. And uh, can't wait to see what the rest of the, the future brings for this great trade and this great career. So, uh, Matt, you know, you started out running for local union office and you kind of set your sights a little bit more public oriented. Can you tell us a little bit about what came into that decision, uh, you know, what positions you held and where you're at now as far as public office goes? Yeah, so basically, uh, thanks, Ben. But basically, early on in the 2000s and early on in my apprenticeship, you know, I got very involved in the union and very involved in politics with helping uh, local politicians and some even on the national level, including Congresswoman Kaptur and then many commissioners and, and city council folks along the way. So kind of got me into the arena that way, but never, ever did I ever think that I was qualified and, and wanted to be a, a local politician. But uh, in 2014, my uh, district two council rep became the mayor and he was a union president for the Toledo police officers and he was a great labor guy. And when looking in district two, which was an area of about 45 to 50,000 voters, we were having a hard time finding someone that had the, the labor views that we had. And finally they came to me and I told them they were all crazy and wasn't going to do it. And they said, you know, basically, Matt, you're the guy for the job. You know, you're a labor guy. You're, you're heavily involved. You love the city of Toledo. You know, why don't you try it out? Again, I told them that they were crazy, but I would go talk to my wife and talk to her about it and see what she thought about it. We had a young four-year-old at the time, so wanted to make sure she was okay with it. And with her blessing, as she said, she goes, Matt, you're the perfect guy for it. You already do just about everything a city councilman does. So I think you should give it a shot. And from there on out, we ran a very tough, tough campaign in 2014 against three other candidates. And I believe the final number I won by was 350 votes. So it was a definitely a tough road, but uh, it got, got us in there, got labor back at the table at city council, and I've won two elections since then. Matt, when you first ran in Ohio, was there any kind of candidate training program or anything like that that you were able to take advantage of? You know, there was, Paul, there was, I don't want to sound arrogant here by any means, but it, it wasn't very strong. I had friends in the AFL-CIO and I, I had the building trades here locally surround me heavily. And I guess with picking a little bit from each one of them, we were able to really pick a strategy and go after it and win. 
But on the other side of it, I hired a private team that was very heavily involved in elections here. Basically, I think when uh, I did hire them, they didn't think I had a chance, but I promised them that if they did put their faith in me, I'd work every day as hard as I could to try to get labor elected. And that's what we did. So since then, uh, I think the programs have gotten a little bit stronger, but they could always use some work, especially for men and women like me from labor to try to get more of us a seat at the table. So it looks like, you know, the the labor unions were fairly supportive of your candidacy. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how gathering a network of supporters, running for office is not something that you really want to do it alone. You know, I mean, you're out there, you know, talking to people and everything, but grabbing a network of people, please tell us how important that is. Yeah, so one thing I failed to mention earlier in my comments was I was able to, as I ran for, as a Democrat, I was able to get appointed before my election. So uh, I was a sitting city council member. And I remember holding my first fundraiser at the Northwest Ohio Building Trades here. And I remember I had a council meeting and I was late to my own very first fundraiser. And then, you know, I had butterflies in my stomach and what am I going to do? I shouldn't be late to my own fundraiser. But I had city business to handle as well. So when I got over to the building trades and the fundraiser and saw the parking lot that I didn't even have my own spot to park in at my own fundraiser, just overwhelmed me. The sheet metal workers throughout the state of Ohio and other states around and the international and the Northwest Ohio building trades here, even the public sector unions, the Teamsters, the AFSCMEs, the UAWs, they just all really believed in me and got on board right away. And, you know, we were looking at a price tag back then in 2014 of at least $50,000 to win our first race. And uh, we well exceeded that. So it is very, very key that all labor, at least most labor is supportive because obviously um, they have the cash to help you along and do the mailings and the, we ran TV ads here, uh, the signs and Without babbling on too much, but it goes back to all that's great and well, but knocking the doors is probably number one. And labor really showed up for that. We had 50, 60 labor members out every weekend knocking doors, not including my family members. My wife actually, during that uh, campaign in 2014, knocked more doors than I did. So not only did it take my strong union family, but it took my very immediate family and cousins and friends and all that to really get it done. It was just a great show of support all the way around. So Matt, what are some of the issues that you're working on now in Toledo? You know, one of the biggest things, Paul, and I mentioned this to you before was, you know, when I came on board in 2014, we really only had uh, one public project labor agreement, and that was with Lucas County commissioners. And that was actually done by another sheet metal before me, John Slodzik, who ended up leading the building trades. Uh, he was the business manager of the building trades and was able to get that done. So one of the things working on with my fellow brother sheet metal workers here and also the Northwest Ohio building trades is trying to get more of those project labor agreements in place. And I don't mean to toot our horn here in Toledo, but I, I will because we have just about every public entity that has a project labor agreement now in place of $100,000 or more. So, you know, the Lucas County Library, the Lucas County Land Banks, the public schools in our area, 
the other schools that are all surrounding us. I could go on and on and on. And that's not even touching on the private sector PLAs. Just feel like I've been on council long enough that even when private developers are coming into our area, a lot of people say, you know, you might want to give Matt Cherry a call so he can try to help you, you know, navigate through the, the hurdles you might face. And we do that by getting them in touch immediately with the Northwest Ohio Building Trades and getting plans put in place so that it's not people from, you know, other states or other parts of the country doing our work here in the city of Toledo. It's usually always city of Toledo ones or Northwest Ohioans. So one of the biggest things that I really hang our hat on is how many project labor agreements we've been able to accomplish. And, you know, things of that nature that haven't touched the sheet metal workers or the, the building trades yet are uh, one of my biggest things before I leave this office is we have deplorable conditions in our fire department and uh, the firehouses here are just in the worst shape I've ever seen. And, you know, those are things that sheet metal workers and the rest of the building trades are going to build. And so right now I'm working on a plan of how to get something like that done, whether it be a, a levy or figuring out how the city can bond that out and finance that so we can build, you know, hopefully 18 to 20 new fire stations here in the city. That's a great opportunity and, uh, you know, something that perhaps with your connections with the city, that type of work would not be available otherwise. So it just opens a lot of doors being able to have those connections and having a person like you who is in tune with city business. Matt, I have one last question. Sure. Just to throw it out there. Um, if you had one piece of advice is for somebody looking to run for office, what would that be? Make sure your family is prepared for it. That's probably been the biggest strain on, on myself is even though, you know, my wife has been the rock and always told me to go for it. You know, there's times where unfortunately I'll miss one of my son's soccer games or something like that. And, that, you know, that comes with both jobs. That comes with the being a business representative here and sticking up for the members and making sure that we're doing the right things for them and also for uh, Toledoans here in the city of Toledo. But I know that when I look at my children, at least my oldest, I don't know if my youngest yet realizes what president of Toledo City Council means, but my oldest definitely does. And he knows that I'm definitely trying to make a difference here in the city. And I can see that happening already in his life at 12 years old. So he's already trying to do things that I'm doing for, you know, our members and, and in our constituents. So I guess that goes a long way with me, but, you know, make sure your family's first and, and that they're on board because it definitely takes a lot. Absolutely. And we really, really appreciate the sacrifice you put in, the sacrifice your family has put in as well, not just for the members, but the local community there too. Matt, appreciate thank it you very much for being here, brother. Thank you very much for being here, Matt. Again, thanks, man. Thanks, Paul, for having me. And you guys have a great day. You too. Thank you. The NSF employees kept America moving during the pandemic while making the company billions of dollars in record profits. In return, BNSF thanked them with a high-vis attendance policy that would destroy families, ruin lives, and threatens the safety of the very railroaders who made them successful. Contact your congressperson now by texting NOHIVIZ, that's N-O-H-I-V-I-Z, to 67336 to send them a message. Tell them to back the workers who kept America moving. Do it today. Message and data rates may apply. Our next guest is Dan O'Connell, who is approaching his 50th year being associated with our union. And he served as the New Jersey State Legislative Director for more than two decades until his retirement in 2018. He also served as the Dalran Councilman and Burlington County Freeholder. Dan has been a recognizable face across every part of this union as his formidable reputation in the New Jersey State House 
preceded him prior to his retirement. Dan, sir, welcome to the podcast, brother. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you today. Well, thank you. And, you know, Dan, you've had just such a stellar career uh, in association with Smart Transportation Division, and you left it basically all on the table during your time serving as a union officer. What motivated you after all your distinguished career as a union officer to go ahead and run for local office after everything you had already accomplished? Well, actually, I, I got into local office shortly before I retired. Uh, people didn't know I was getting ready to retire. I hadn't made an announcement yet, but I live in a small town of about 15,000 people. And I thought maybe for the years working in Trenton and even in Washington, D.C., that it might be of some value and it would be a way for me to give back to the, my hometown, Delran, New Jersey. And so uh, did you challenge an incumbent or was this a vacancy? No, that's an interesting question, Ben. It was an open seat and election night came and I was running with two other council persons. They were incumbents and they won handily because they were known in town. Uh, my opponent and I were not that well known. As a matter of fact, we didn't get the results that night for a variety of reasons. A vote by mail had started in New Jersey and that's done at the county level, not at the local level. And their computer malfunctioned, and they wouldn't have the results that night. So by the time we went home election night, uh, I was actually down for a while, but then I was up by about 10 or 15 votes. And we didn't really find out uh, for about three weeks. And then when I finally won, I won by nine votes. So I gave myself the nickname a landslide Dan. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, it had to be exciting. Uh, I mean, you were probably on pins and needles that whole period, right? Well, you know, it, it's funny. If you've ever, you know, I have done as a legislative representative and a legislative director and a member of the state, New Jersey State AFL-CIO, I've done get out the vote campaigns, you know, for many years before this, but it's completely different when it's your name on the ballot. So I had gone and I had spent a lot of time on the weekends. I didn't have much time to devote during the week because I was still the state director. So, you know, when I first started, it'd be nice if I won, if I didn't win. But after you have invested months of your time, I wanted to win. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was all in. And I remember about a week or two after the election, when we were still waiting for votes, I got a call from the uh, COPE director of the New Jersey State AFL-CIO. And he says, uh, you got to demand a recount. So what do we know? I, I called the municipal chairman, who was also a councilman at the time. And I said, labor's telling me I have to ask for a recount. Well, he had been around a while, even though we're, he's younger than me in age, he had been involved in local politics longer. He said, Dan, how about if we get a result first before we go asking for a recount? So in a few days, he calls me up and he says, uh, you're up by nine votes. And there's 15 votes to count. Now, he says, the way the voting has gone, neither of you are going to get all 15 votes. But he said, I just want to let you know, if it ends up a tie, you're going to have to campaign for another election. Well, you start campaigning at the end of summer, you know, around Labor Day, when it's lighter out in the evening than it is in November. So now I'm still working. And I'm going, how in the heck am I going to 
But anyway, the 15 vote split, I ended up winning by 10 votes. I think I got nine and he got none. Uh, six of them were thrown out. They were ruled invalid. So uh, yeah, it was kind of an interesting metamorphosis of me as a candidate. I went from this kind of, well, this will be nice if I win. And if I don't win, it's not so bad. The three months into the campaign, I was all in and I wanted to win very, very much. So Dan, New Jersey is a state that has a strong infrastructure when it comes to supporting local labor candidates for office. Can you tell us a little bit about the process that goes into running for office as a labor candidate there? Yes, uh, that's a great question, Paul. Uh, the New Jersey State AFL-CIO has a labor candidates program. It was the first one, uh, and it's been serving as a model to state feds around the country. While I had been a member of the New Jersey State AFL-CIO executive board for more than 15 years, that wasn't enough. They require you to go through their school where they give you tips on how to run, uh, what you need to do in terms of getting out the vote, working with your local central labor councils. I mean, it's a really intricate process. And, you know, the great thing is when you're in it and when you're looking at it, you realize it's your brothers and sisters in labor that are going to be getting out every Saturday morning and going out on your behalf, knocking on doors of union members in support of your candidacy. But you cannot get the, uh, the nod until you go through, and that's only the first step. Then you have to go through the process at the state AFL-CIO's uh, convention, where they then vet all the candidates. And when I won, ironically, I was the 800th labor candidate to win in New Jersey. And my local number in the, the Smart TD is local 800. So that was a nice little coincidence. And now that number is up over a thousand and it continues. And it's a great program. It gives you all kinds of tips. And I remember the one thing I remember, they told you, you can always raise more money. You can always print more literature. There's only one thing that's finite and that's time. And you have to use that time as best you can. And you know, you go out every Saturday and Sunday, whether it was me running for now county commissioner, but then freeholder or as a candidate for council in Delran. Once I was retired, I would go out during the week for a couple of hours, as long as it was light out. We're encouraged not to go door knocking after dark for obvious reasons. So Dan, what kind of difference do you think? You mentioned that at that time, there were 800 people that had been elected across New Jersey. Now it's over a thousand or that have run for office, right? Through the labor program. What kind of difference have you seen that make? Well, you know, the parties in New Jersey know, because uh, we're a strong labor state, they court labor, they seek our financial contributions, they certainly would love our help with boots on the ground, uh, getting out the vote. But I think what changes the dynamic is that sometimes the parties can take us for granted. We've always been around, they think, you know, what we've done, we've always done. So all of a sudden, when now you're stepping up, and when I talk about 800 labor candidates and 1,000 labor candidates, we've had candidates everywhere from uh, the, our state Senate president down to county office holders, state assembly people, board of education people, mayors. So I think what it does is it gives, even though we're in a strong labor state, it adds a different dynamic and a little bit of a different facet that all of a sudden, hey, they're not only going to help elect a candidate, they're going to be candidates themselves. And now once you're involved at whatever level you're involved, now you're able to you know, work the levers of government. And while as a state director and as a legislative representative, and even as a member before I ever became an officer, 
I wrote my legislators on issues. I lobbied them on issues. It's a lot different when you're, you know, you're in the group that you used to lobby. And it's really interesting. I never realized until I was in it how being a union officer really kind of prepares you for elected office. I think back when we're discussing issues when we were in Delran and when we're discussing issues now in Burlington County, and there's a nexus, there's a, there's a kind of a connection between what I used to do at the union and what we do now as legislators. You're listening to Talking Smart. Mobilize, organize, unionize. Do you have story ideas or have a question for the general president or union leadership? Call us toll-free at 844-984-0947 with your questions or ideas. Once again, 844-984-0947. So Dan, before running for office, did you consult with anyone? Like, did you have a committee of friends or fellow members who helped you out? No. <laughs> uh, after I decided to run, because it, I, I didn't talk, talk to anybody except my immediate family at the time to kind of get their take on it. I still hadn't told people I was retiring and I didn't want to let the cat out of that bag until I absolutely had to. And and then I also had to, you know, in Delran, I had to go before the Democratic Committee in town. Uh, several names had been floated, but when it came to me, one of the things that are attractive to political parties having labor candidates is we have a built-in infrastructure that comes along not only to help us campaign, but to help us fund their campaign that is irrespective of the party. So you kind of bring your own resources along with it. And ironically, when I, I had gotten reelected on council, when I got approached to run for freeholder at the time, and the man that succeeded me, he lives in my neighborhood and he's a teamster. So, you know, all of a sudden another labor person came along to take my place. And I think a lot of the thinking was the same as it was for me that, hey, Dan will bring people that'll help get out the vote and he'll also bring around other resources. So Dan, our union covers a diverse spectrum. You know, we have working class sheet metal workers, we have bus operators, we have transit operators, we have folks who work on the railroad, you know, all sorts of different crafts. Why is it important to get you know, people from all of these walks of life involved in the political world? Uh, ben, I, I'd answer it in a couple of ways. One, you know, I told you about my first race for Delran Council, where I won by, you know, uh, 10 or 15 votes. You know, at the time, people were saying, you know, geez, that's too bad. Or I said, no, actually, it isn't. As a state legislative director, part of my job was to go around to our locals to encourage our members to register to vote, vote for labor candidates. In other words, candidates, not necessarily that had a labor background, but had shown by their records or had indicated they would support labor on their issues. Well, the response you would get many times from the membership is, uh, my vote doesn't count. And I go, have you got a minute for a quick story? And I tell them about winning a race by 10 or 15 votes. You know, all I had, all I had to do is have nine other people show up and vote the other way. And we're all not having this conversation today. And secondly, you know, what's happened, it, ha it started to happen shortly before I retired. People have grown so cynical about politics because they don't feel 
that the politicians really have their uh, interest in mind. And by and, and the way some of them act, they don't. But if you're there, now you know you can you can help steer that ship. You can help give a perspective of what a working person is going through. Because you know a lot a lot of people don't know what a sheet metal worker does. A lot of people, you know, they don't know what a railroad worker does. Uh, about the you know the odd hours, uh, uh, the laying away from home, the things that we you know, put up with to make a living. People think, you know, uh, my vote doesn't count. Well, it did, it did when I first ran for office. And it even did, you know, to get the nod to run for freehold, I had to go before the county Democratic Committee. And there were 13 of us that ran for that position. It came down to two of us in a runoff election. And I won that election by 10 votes. So Landslide Dan continued when he, when he became when he became a county officer. And, and you know what? Some people think you need a college education. We certainly have enough lawyers in government. I think we need people, you know, when we first started this country, we had people from all walks of life. Uh, and, and I think we ought to look to, to going back to that a bit. I think if we have some average Joes and Janes, uh, we might be doing a little bit better. Um, one in the perception the public have of us, and also in, in trying to do things to help people. So uh, Dan, one final question here. Wanted to ask you, and yeah, you kind of touched upon this, uh, you know, the networking and getting an infrastructure together and so forth. What advice would you have for other members succeeding you who are interested in running for a local office? Well, state legislative directors already know this from their interactions. And we've had a host of them. I'm thinking of uh, Stan Blake out in Wyoming. Uh, he was a member, I think, of their house. We have another big Bob Borgeson is still the state director in Nebraska, is running for office out there. So the state legislative directors and legislative representatives in our union, I think they understand. But, you know, I tell people, not just in our union, but in any union, you know, think about it. First of all, I, I started out, I wanted to do something for my hometown. I just wanted to give back. And that's a great thing in and of itself. But the other thing is, around the country, we know it as union folks, union density has dropped us down into the low teens, uh, almost single-digit numbers. So a lot of people in this country, the only times they ever hear about labor or unions or maybe during a strike or a layoff or when there's some kind of issue, and our perception in the public is not always favorable. Well, you know, it's a little bit different. Uh, when all of a sudden now, uh, you know, you run in the town you live in or you run in the county you live in and they get to see you and find out, hey, you know, this person is just like me and has ideas about how government ought to work and can put forth things in the front of our heads. We're first and foremost union people, labor folks. And we can put forth that idea to, to demystify some of the negative stereotypes. What I always wanted for me as a union worker and for the people I represented I wanted them to have a job with good wages and dignity, benefits, and at the end of a career, uh, some retirement, a way to you know enjoy uh, the, their remaining years uh, you know with dignity. That's an American value. That's not peculiar to unions. So when we do that, when we can step up and hold office like that, I remember one time at a meeting we were talking about pensions, and you know pensions are an issue uh, for some of our unions because. In New Jersey here, we've had a, a terrible problem with an unfunded liability. Well, anyway, we were talking one night at a meeting and 
somebody spoke up and said, well, what are pensions? You know, very sarcastically. Boy, I, I have a bit of a hair trigger temper. And I turned to him and, and I said, well, maybe if you had a union, you have a pension. Because I realized that most workers that don't have unions don't have pensions. Maybe if they're lucky, uh, they have a 401k. But it isn't like our pension system where it's a defined benefit. It's a defined contribution. And God forbid, if somebody who may be planning to retire right now with all the gyrations the market is going through because of what's going on, not only in our country, but around the world, and that thing drops, all of a sudden now, I retired at 66 years of age. I'd like to say I could have done it longer, but I was feeling my 66 years of age. And uh, you can't work forever. Uh, but without pensions, without Social Security, uh, without railroad retirement, you're not going to be able to do that. Yep. And so, you know, the main thing to walk away with is uh, there's a lot of education that needs to be done. And it takes a special kind of union member to do it, uh, to just step up and run for office. So Dan, this about wraps it up. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. You know, as we said before, your reputation precedes you. You've given us a lot to chew on, uh, a lot for the members to chew on. Hopefully uh, your words inspire them, motivate them to take the next step. And it's been an honor to have you on today's episode, sir. Ben, thanks so much. And Paul and, and, and Michael and Amy. I just want to say, you know, I, I had a great career. I loved being a locomotive engineer and then to, uh, to get to serve our union. But there's an old expression in labor. You're either at the table or you're on the menu. When you run for office, it's just another way of getting to the table and helping your members and helping yourself. So it's been a real pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Dan, thank you very much for being here. We really appreciate it. We appreciate everything you've done for this union over the years and for you coming back, giving us some more of your time. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, Paul. Take care. Smart has launched a brand new home on the internet, your source for up-to-date personalized information from your union, including the Sheet Metal Job Bank, Transportation Division Safety Reports, Breaking News, and more. Visit smart-union.org and create an account at the member portal to find personalized resources just for you. Sign-up instructions are located at the top of the homepage of the website in the red alert section. Welcome to the Open Mic segment of the Talking Smart podcast. We have on with us today, General President Joseph Sellers, who's here to answer a question that's been on the mind of many railroaders across this country. General President Sellers, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Greatly appreciate the invite. Thank you. The question we have, it's one that we've heard many times at local union meetings. We've heard this question online on Facebook, through social media, many outlets, is why are railroaders not allowed to strike? Thank you for the question. I would say make sure, number one, you contact your transportation division leadership. And I know that this topic has come up quite a bit recently, particularly in the wake of the BNSF and the company's attendance policy. And I know it's on the minds of so many of our members. But due to the Railroad Labor Act, the hows and the when we can strike is really heavily, heavily regulated. I would also refer back to President Jeremy Ferguson's podcast about this particular topic. 
You know, the uh, Railroad Labor Act categorizes the labor disputes into major and minor disputes. Major disputes concern making or modifying the collective bargaining agreement, where a minor dispute involves around the collective bargaining agreement and how it's interpreted or applied. So we must exhaust the negotiation and the mediation procedures as developed, and we need to follow the Railway Labor Act. Strikes are not allowed on a minor dispute. The Railroad Labor Act also gives federal courts the power to enjoin strikes if a union has not exhausted the procedures. Again, go back to Jeremy Ferguson's. He goes through a detailed podcast about all these situations. But there's also severe penalties for unions and members if we're found violating the court order or the process for mediation. These include major fines. There's also a possibility of termination for members from their job. So there are issues that we need to make sure that we comply with. And I know it's frustrating. I know that it's hard, but we must avoid this path. We must and we need to follow the process, the Railway Labor Act process. We need to follow that for the benefit of our members, to protect our members' interests, and frankly, not to give the carrier anything to be used against us. So I would refer and make sure that if you have any further questions or if you have any situations, please make sure you contact your union leadership to get the answer and to give you a path forward to interact with your local leadership and you as a union on a particular issue. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, Again, make sure you check President Ferguson's uh, podcast which will go into more in depth of uh, the very light overview that I've answered this particular question on. But thank you for your question. I greatly appreciate it. I know it's on the minds of so many of our members. So thanks for uh, sending it in. And General President Sellers, just one other question. This doesn't just affect members operating railroads, but also railroad shop persons, right? That's correct. Yes, that, that is correct. So it is a broad effect on the entire union of SMART. General President Sellers, I want to thank you for being here, answering this question, question that's been on the minds of a lot of people. And uh, we really appreciate you taking your time to be here today. Thank you, Paul. I know that this is, as you indicated, this is on the minds of so many members. Uh, Thank you for the question. Uh, Everybody be safe out there. And thank you for all that you do. Have a good day. Listeners interested in learning more about the status of the National Rail Contract Negotiations and our union's ongoing opposition to BNSF's high-vis attendance policy can download episode 19 of the Talking Smart podcast that features Transportation President Jeremy Ferguson that's available anytime through the news menu link at the top of the Smart website or wherever you listen to podcasts.